0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want to read that to, a couple of passages to you. One of, one of them is in John 17. This is, of course, Jesus' high priestly power, a, a prayer, I mean high priestly prayer, and uh, there are some amazing things in it. I just want to look at one verse in John, in, uh, John 17. If you'll turn there regarding Jesus and what the Father has done in him. John 17, verse 2. Verse 17 says that uh, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. And he kept referring to this as the hour. The hour when he's going to be crucified on the cross on our behalf and he says that the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you and then he explains even as you have given me authority or given him authority which he's talking about himself over all flesh that to all whom you have given me he may give eternal life when you come into a relationship with christ he gives you eternal life jesus went to the cross for you and uh, this passage in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, I want you to turn back there. I've mentioned this before, that John, um, in Isaiah 53 is the passage that was the most used passage by the apostles when they preached the gospel. Now you have to realize they didn't have the New Testament. They wrote the New Testament, but they didn't have the New Testament as they began to preach the gospel, and this was the place they would go because the prophecy concerning his death is so clear, and you heard it this morning. What I want to do is just to look at these uh, three verses, verses 10, 11, and 12, and to see, I think you have that little handout, which has got way too many notes in it, and it probably will discourage you from looking at it. It looks like one of some notes I would hand out in class. But uh, this is, this is uh, what he says in verses 10 through 12, the very end of Isaiah 53. He says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's a puzzling statement, isn't it? That the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring or his seed as most. That's what it literally says. And most translations use that word. His seed It's talking about all those who will come to faith in him and receive life in him. And he says he will see his seed and he, he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of his soul while he was on the cross, it wasn't the physical pain. It was the anguish of his soul. What he was doing was fulfilling God's purpose and plan that they had agreed upon in eternity to pass for him to come and to die for those whom the Father had given to him to save them. He will see it. And be satisfied that it there is referring back to the closest antecedent is his offspring, his seed. He's saying, "When he will, see, see his seed. He's looking down right now and sees you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are his seed, his, uh, his offspring. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it, that is his offspring, and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. That's what he's doing right now in this time. He's justifying the many. All those who come to faith in Christ are justified. That means they're made right with God. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty or the spoils with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What this, what this uh, is about is a celebration, Easter is about in one sense, is it's a celebration of a satisfied God. You see, when Jesus, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the evidence that the Father was pleased in what he had accomplished on the cross. And so he was raised from the dead, and now we have a living Savior, and we have one whom we trust who is alive and is in the presence of God and is coming back one of these days. What I want to do is look at these three, just these three verses, these three paragraphs. And uh, what we have here is a sort of an outline. God's good pleasure is found in verse 10. And, and he describes that because he says his servant will be crushed and exalted. Now, I've never enjoyed uh, any of my children being crushed. I wouldn't mind doing it now, but... Uh, uh, but it says that God was pleased to crush him because he was crushed as a sacrifice, as it says in the first part of that verse, in verse 10. Um, He renders himself as a guilt offering. And the idea of that is that he becomes the offering that pays your debt. The word uh, guilt offering is always referring to trespass in the New Testament. And trespass means it is it's it means to to fall down alongside, alongside of what you ought to do. You've had people in your life that have let you down. They've made you commitments. They've made commitments they were going to do for you, and then they fail to do it. That's a trespass. That's a failure to meet up to your obligation. You've made promises, and uh, when we uh, we do a wedding, we we actually. Are, are going through a covenant making. There is a covenant making that takes place. A man and a woman make a covenant with each other. Now, in the in the Old Testament, uh, it was very common when a covenant was made, they would take animals and cut them in half, and then the two parties would walk through those pieces of animals, halves of animals, because they was, the, what they were doing was saying, If I fail to meet up to my obligation in this relationship, let me be like one of these. (laughs) That's pretty serious. If you remember when God made a covenant with Abraham, he caused Abraham to fall asleep because it was going to be totally up to God to make this covenant. And so God gets these animals and he cuts them in half. And then he takes Abraham as he comes out of his sleep and walks him through these animals What we have in the new covenant is jesus has already paid the penalty for a broken covenant now that doesn't make you want to break the covenant it makes you want to live in faith and in valuing the lord jesus christ for what he's done for you he's took your place and he's paid the penalty of a broken covenant Um, in hebrews 9 26 it says this it says now once at the end of the ages He has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What he's just been talking about is how the priest had to go into the temple every year and offer a sacrifice for the people. But he says, but Jesus came and once at the end of the ages, it says in most translations, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is, he put away your sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, the, in the way that that's translated, the end of the ages, is a little bit confusing because the word that's used there means the high point of the ages. It means the crucial moment in the ages. The only way you can make sense of the ages is if you understand that Jesus came into this world and he paid, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's how he did it. Don't you love that expression, he put away sin? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, instead of hiding it, instead of acting as though we have no sin, we have come to discover that he put away our sin through his work on the cross. And he did it at the high point of the ages, which means he did it at the crucial moment, which brings all the ages together. The ages are these periods of time in which God does particular things. And it's all leading up to something. But he says the crucial moment, what was, lead, what was being led up to, and then what everything flowed out of was the work of Christ of putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he was the only one who could. And that's what he did for us. And so God's good pleasure is that his servant will be crushed and exalted, because, not because he loved to see him in pain, but because he loved to see the work, uh, the handiwork of his doing. Imagine as you look around this room, there are many people, probably most of you have come to faith in Christ, and your sins have been forgiven. Isn't that amazing? He took your sins away, and he doesn't count them. Or sometimes you count them. Sometimes you're thinking, uh, you know, I would like to pray, but I just feel like God's probably pretty upset with me the way I've lived. Oh, you don't understand. He's taking care of your sin in Christ Jesus. And he wants to work in your life. So Jesus was crushed as a sacrifice, we're told in the first part of verse 10. And the last part of verse 10, it says he was exalted as a savior. And there's just this one condition in order for him to be crushed and exalted. And that is he had to make himself a guilt offering. He had to become a guilt offering. And that guilt offering is the offering that pays for your trespasses all those things in your life that you fall short. So if God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said that was the greatest of all the commandments. And guess what? Jesus died so that my failure to fulfill that as I should has been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can rest in that. That's why Paul writes his words in Ephesians too, when he says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Nobody gets saved by doing good works, because you'd be proud, and you would want to let people know what you accomplished. And he says, so he did this. His son is the one who accomplished salvation for us. And then in the uh, second um, verse that we're looking at, verse 11, uh, he's talking about God's good promise. Listen to what he says. As a result of the anguish of his soul, his suffering on the cross, he will see it, that is his seed, and then guess who that is? That's all of you who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, there are a few billion of them around the world, and he will see it and be satisfied. Isn't that amazing? He's satisfied with what he accomplished, that he saved a multitude of people. The book of Revelation, chapter 5, it says he saves people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's why a believer can travel around the world and run into Christians in the most odd places, because he has saved a whole group of people. He'll see his seed and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Iniquities are all the effects of sin. Have you ever, do you know what the effects of sin are? I just assume you do, because I do. Because I've experienced them, and I assume you have too at times. That uh, there are consequences to our sins. It destroys relationship. It uh, does all kinds of damage to our life. And yet he is going to bear their iniquities. It was poured out upon him. So this good promise of God is his servant will be satisfied. i tell you, I think that's incredible, that the son is satisfied with what he has done. It's interesting, when you talk to people about the work of Christ, a lot of times you can tell it, it doesn't affect them, it doesn't impress them. But Jesus Christ was satisfied with what he did on the cross for his people. And uh, he said that his, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. That is, he knew that what he was doing was going to be the basis for which we could be made right with God. Now, being made right with God is bigger than we could explain. It's huge. Being right with God. See, God knows you through and through. You can be right with a lot of people because they, they can't see in the dark. They can't see what's going on in your life. They can't see into your soul or your spirit or your, or your heart. But Jesus can. And he's satisfied with what he has done because his salvation is a real salvation that touches a person in every area of their life. In fact, he empowers you. He so changes you in, in giving you the spirit that you actually find yourself loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. I uh, have a friend I haven't seen for many years, but he's over in South Africa, and he's a church planner. In fact, he's real sick right now. And uh, he does evangelism among people in very poor circumstances, living in little villages and huts, and he preaches the gospel, what happens is people get saved. That happens when you preach the gospel. And so they they form churches. 15 to 20 people get saved in a little village, and all of a sudden they realize that they are a church because that's what happens when people get saved. It forms a church. And so they begin meeting together, but they don't really know what to do. And they don't have any professionals over there that come in and show them what to do. And so these are the instructions he tells them. He says, well, you know, Jesus said you are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that's all you do. Just shape your service around those four things. Loving God with all your heart, singing and praising him like we did a while ago. We're saying words. We're singing words that are so amazing. Glory to his name. And uh, he says, so you sing. And then you love him with all your soul which means you pray. You come before him and bear your heart and soul to him. And then you love him with all your mind, which is instruction. So someone needs to teach the word of God. And guess what? God raises up people in those kind of circumstances to teach the word. Not through a seminary, not through a Bible college, but through the word of God. And then he says, love him with all your strength, which is service. You serve him. And I thought it was so simple uh, the way that you, you, you can organize a church. And this is what he's done. He's got hundreds of these little churches in existence in South Africa. And this is what they do. And I think it would be just a great joy to join them in worship, wouldn't it? And you could love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength together with fellow believers. That's one of the most wonderful things about being the Church of Jesus Christ is when we meet fellow Christians... We know we are of the same family and we have the same father, the same father. And so when we pray, we say, father, we call him father and we tell him what's on our hearts and we make requests of him because we know he's prejudiced towards us. He loves us. He wants to meet our needs. He wants to bless our lives. So God's uh, good promise is that the son after completing his work, would be satisfied, and that he would bear, he would offer a sacrifice that would be the basis of our being justified, and then he would bear us. He would deal with the consequences of sins, bear iniquities. Isn't that wonderful? Man alive, I would hate to have to bear the consequences of my sinfulness in the past. I would, and in the present too. <laughs> I would hate to do that, but he's born. And so we've been set free. And then finally, in the, the third paragraph, a third uh, uh, verse, in this verse 12, God's good reward, his servant will reign. He'll reign victorious, he says. You see that in verse 12 as a result of, I'm sorry, therefore, I will allot him, this is God speaking, I will allot him a portion of the great and he will divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, he's going to be a mighty deliverer. He's going to affect so many people. I forget how many billion Christians there are in the world, but wouldn't that be something to be in the midst of all the Christians in the world in some place? I don't know how you can hold a billion people. Is, is that possible? I don't think so. But uh, there's a billion, over a billion people who know Jesus Christ, and he says that he's going to divide the, the spoils. It's like the spoils of war. And the idea is, Jesus Christ wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants you to be his. He wants to bless your life. And there are others who want you too. Satan wants you. He wants you to believe his lies. He wants you to be influenced by his desires for you. But he says he's going to allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Interestingly here, he's going to reign victoriously because he suffered vicariously. Now, vicarious suffering means he suffered for somebody else, not himself. And in the last four phrases of this verse, in verse 12, he describes the kind of sacrifice that Jesus was in these four expressions. First, he says, in fact, I think I put that on here. Uh, first of all, he was a it was a voluntary sacrifice. Nobody twisted his arm. He and the Father and the Spirit decided on this plan and At the right time, at the high point of the ages, at that perfect moment, Jesus came into the world and he grew and developed as a man, and He lived the life of obedience to the Father that made the people in that part of the world so angry, they wanted to do away with him because he couldn't help but claiming by his words and actions that he was the son of God. And so they wanted to kill him. They wanted to put him to death. What they didn't realize was God was using them to accomplish his good purpose of his son paying for our sins. And so he describes his sacrifice this way. It was a voluntary sacrifice. He poured himself out, he gave himself up. I don't know about you, but a, a very um, a deep uh, reaction I have to all suffering is, is to avoid it. You know what it's like to have pain and how you you jerk back, you pull back from it. You don't want any part of it. But it says he poured himself out to death. He volunteered. He he. The Father sent him into the world, and that's why he said in the garden. Remember. He said, if this cup, that is, this death, this kind of death, this death which is the outpouring of of the wrath of God and the wrath of men upon him, he says, if there's any way that I could not drink this cup, and he stops right there. It's a a funny thing. If you're studying the language, it's like he stops in mid-sentence and he changes the whole tenor of what he's saying. He says, if there's any way I can not drink of this cup, Then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. Not my desire, but your desire be done. So he was voluntary in this as being a sacrifice. Secondly, he was substitutionary. Now, these are nice big words, theological words, but they're wonderful. He stood as your substitute. Listen to these words. He was numbered with the transgressors. That expression means he identified with us. He identified with us when he went to the cross. <laughs> it's, it's a stunning thought, but this is the omniscient God, the second person of the Godhead. He had all knowledge and the ability to know all things. He knew about you at this point already, even though you hadn't been born yet. And he goes to the cross knowing those for whom he's dying and who's going to receive his salvation. But, and so that's why it says he was numbered with the transgressors. You're thinking, uh, well, it's those two criminals on each side of him. They were transgressors. That's true, but he was numbered with us. He died the death we should have died. And then he was an atoning sacrifice. And that word is just a big word that means he paid the price for us, that God was satisfied with the payment. Uh, that's the... The, the word that we use in the New Testament for this is found in 1 John 2, and it says, he is, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. John actually says this. I'm writing this letter to you, this little small letter to you that you could read in 10 minutes. I'm writing this to you that you might not sin. But if any one of you sins, remember, at that very moment, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, the word uh, uh, that's talking about this, this one who stands in, in the front of God for us, he stands with God being our defense, is the word that we would use, the, the word we would use in English would be, he's our attorney. He's the one called alongside of us. He comes alongside in order to work for us and for our situation. And so while you're sinning, this really struck me when I first saw it, while I was sinning, Jesus was, was defending me before the Father. He wasn't defending my sin. He was defending me as one for whom Christ had died, and that my sins would be forgiven, not punished, but forgiven. Isn't that amazing? That is an amazing thing. My dad, um, he gave pretty good spankings, but he would always say to me this, and I actually thought he was telling me the truth. He said, he would say, son, this is, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. And the first time I heard it, I thought, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> but after I watched his life, I believe that that's exactly how he felt. Um, the father has allowed the Son to come into his presence and defend us. And so he has made propitiation for us. Now, making propitiation is a word we don't use every day, but it's a word that was used by people in the first century who had any kind of religion because it had the idea of, of satisfying the one to whom we had, against whom we had sinned. He's been satisfied by the work of Christ. So I don't have to look back. I heard a preacher one time say, we were visiting some family, we went to church with them, and this guy was saying, one thing you should do every time you pray is confess every sin you can remember because you may have forgotten one. And I thought, wow, that's the silliest thing I ever heard. You mean my forgiveness is based on me remembering the sins I did five years ago? Good luck. But he has made propitiation, which means he has satisfied God. God is actually satisfied with those who come to his Son in faith and receive eternal life from him. You see, God is really big on this. He wants his Son to be glorified by saving a multitude. He once said he wanted his Son to be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants to save a great, great multitude of people because he wants his Son to be the firstborn among a huge, Family. I, I've known two ladies who've had 10 children. And I kind of watched them. I got to know them pretty well. And I always thought, wow, this, these are really strong women. How do you take care of 10 kids? I understand that giving birth to 10 kids is a big deal. But what about raising them? We had a lady in our church here in the first couple years. And she uh, was homeschooling her children. Now, some of them were already grown up and gone to college. They all did very well. But she was homeschooling 10 children. <laughs> That's amazing to me. But God wants his son, through his work on the cross, to save a huge multitude of people. Not so that the church would be big, but so that the family would be big and that they, he would be the firstborn among Many brethren, which means family members. And that's what he is determined to do. And so it was an atoning sacrifice. The last thing is, it was an effective, he was an effective sacrifice. In the words, and he interceded for the transgressors. You know what that means? It means he's been calling your name to the Father, he's actually been asking for you. There have been times you've been in situations that you thought God abandoned you and you didn't know that Jesus was interceding for you, that he actually cares. In fact, we're told that when we go through trials, um, what we must do is we must cast our fears, our anxieties upon him because it matters to him about you. And he says this right before that, humble yourself unto the mighty hand of God. Now, the mighty hand of God means God's, sovereign hand and his work, the things that you think, why would God allow this? I don't know, but he's in charge. And don't ever think, well, he couldn't do anything else. He did it because of his love for you, that he was working in your life. And so Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God by casting your fears upon him, because it matters to him about you. He cares for you. And he cares for you like nobody else. In fact, that's why he sent his son into the world to be the sacrifice for your sins so that you could come to him and be saved and forgiven and reunited with the Father. And you could call him Father. I'm sure if you're not a believer, you would be very uncomfortable in praying like that if you thought somebody was listening. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why do we call him our father? Because that's who we are. That's who he is to us since we have rested our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why Christ was willing to do all these things and be this kind of a sacrifice so that he would bring us into the family, give us life and forgiveness and reconciliation. And so that's all I want to tell you on this Easter Sunday, that God, the father raising his son from the dead was evidence that he was satisfied with the son's work. And the prophet here tells us some very specific things about it, that he was satisfied with everything that Jesus did. And it's the basis of the salvation of the worst of sinners who will come in repentance and faith. And Repentance just means change your mind about your thinking. Change your thinking about the way you picture God. You know, when in the fall... I don't know if you go back and read the account, but you'll see that Adam, he took on a real a crooked way of looking at reality. He thought the world was a totally unsafe place and that God was not interested in protecting him. But that was because of the fall. He believed Satan, and, and Satan told him, if you will eat of this fruit, if you'll commit this sin, this rebellion against God, then you'll know good and evil. Well, that was true. He did. He knew good and evil, because he had committed evil for the first time, being disobedient to the Father. But guess what? God has done something about that. That's why we don't care. We don't. It doesn't matter what kind of sin your life has been characterized by. There is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. He's a good God. I just got a phone call from Kevin. I don't know if some of you would remember him. He came up and gave his testimony. And he told us that he toured California in the prison system, that uh, he was all over the north and south because he was in prison doing time because of his lifestyle, and his brother was praying for him. His brother was a member of Valley Bible Church, and he had a friend that prayed with him all the time. And so Calvin was living in, in prison, and he was really going downhill. It wasn't, it wasn't doing good to him. And, he, and yet, his brother was praying for him that he would come to faith in Christ. And something happened. God answered his brother's prayer. His brother had died. But God brought Calvin to life. And uh, he comes to Valley and they, they're going to baptize him. They're getting ready to baptize him. But a guy in the, in the audience stands up and says, Hey, could I say something? And he came forward and he says, Nobody knows me here, but I was one of his brother's friends. And I've been praying for him for five years. I didn't even know he got saved. I just happened to come to church here. And he sees this man being baptized. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't he wonderful? I don't know who you're praying for, but don't stop. Don't stop. In fact, take on a few more. Pray for those that you know that need Christ. Pray that their eyes would be open, and their heart would be open, that the Spirit would open their eyes to the glory of Christ and bring them into the fold and into the family. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've manifested towards us. We thank you for what your son's done. We thank you for the fact that he has satisfied you and you raised him from the dead and he's a living savior. And we are so grateful for that, Father, that he's a living savior and our trust and our hope is in him. I pray that you would open all of our eyes. Those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, I pray that their eyes would be open and that they would come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice and who is able to save to the uttermost. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.